This is the Reformed Libertarians Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute with Carrie Baldwin and Gregory Baus. We explore free society from a Reformed perspective. You can find us at reformedlibertarians.com. We talk about culture, society, politics, economics, theology, philosophy, worldview, and more, helping those interested in liberty and human flourishing to think about them based in the Reformed faith. This is episode three. We're discussing objections to non-monopolist or stateless civil governance. I'm Gregory Baus here with Carrie Baldwin, and we'll be talking about the first in a series of four articles written by Carrie. In this first article, she addresses objections related to law and order and the question of the state's legitimacy. We link to the article in the show notes, as always. It's published at the Libertarian Christian Institute's website, libertarianchristians.com, and it's less than a 10-minute read. We also link to a video presentation, it's not just audio, of the article's main points, and that should also be helpful. So, Carrie, you have a sort of preface to all four of your articles that says, while you believe minarchist libertarians who hold to the legitimacy of a minimal or strictly limited state and anarchist libertarians like us who hold to the need for stateless civil governance, they can cooperate in pursuit of a free society. Nevertheless, the disagreement between these respective positions is worth considering. And in addition to this first article, you go on to address other objections in the remaining articles, such as those related to human sin and the question of the state's necessity, hierarchy and the question of the state's inevitability, as well as imagination or the failure of it, and questions of the plausibility of statelessness. So before we jump into the main points of this article, can you give us an overview of what you say here? Yeah, so basically the idea is that all Christian libertarians, both anarchist and minarchist, believe in civil law and order or civil governance, and that that's necessary in any functioning society. So, you know, one of the greatest myths that we have to bust as anarchists is that we're opposed to civil governance as such. So that's really the main point that I'm trying to make with those prefaces is that we both believe in law and order and civil governance and that we both have in many ways are directed towards the same end. Anarchists just take it one step further and say that we should not have a monopoly state situation even if it's strictly limited. So in this article, I talk about what John Locke believed was required for legitimate civil governance and why he believed that that was, you know, reasons for a monopoly state, essentially. So I present his three requirements for civil governance, first of all, and thus the need for, in his view, the state. Then I present three counter arguments explaining how the state fails Locke's three requirements, and then I elaborate further and show how Locke's requirements are actually reasons against the state and in favor of a stateless civil governance. So essentially, I put Locke against Locke, He had good ideas, but they don't necessitate the state. Rather, their reasons for statelessness or anarchism. All right. Well, let's look at these one at a time, but consider each counterargument directly after each positive reason as given by Locke. You explain that the first reason or argument a state is supposed to be required for legitimate civil governance 
is the need for a third-party arbiter of disputes or the need for impartial judges. Locke says, since there's an obvious conflict of interest, if we were to be judges of disputes we were somehow involved in, that his conclusion is that this is what a state is for, to serve as an impartial judge. There's even a standard Latin phrase for this, something like, Nemo judex in causa sua. Pardon my terrible Latin. <laughs> but this is a fundamental principle of justice that no one may properly act as a judge in their own case or dispute with others. I was thinking maybe we should get, if we had merch for reformed libertarians, we should have like a t shirt with this Latin phrase on it. Anyway. Hey, I like that idea. Right. Yeah, yeah that's a good idea. <laughs> but why, okay, so why is this, this need for impartial judges, why is it really a reason against having a state and a reason for stateless civil governance? Yeah, so the problem with Locke's argument isn't the main premise, right? We do actually need impartial judges in our disputes. The problem is that as a monopoly, a state simply can't avoid being a judge in its own case. Generally, we think of the courts as being the impartial third party. And certainly if you and I were to be in a legal dispute, we'd need a third person to hear and decide that dispute. And so we might go to a court or a judge to have them hear that dispute. The problem comes when, say, you have a dispute with that third person, with that court. They cannot be impartial in their own case. So as a monopoly on civil governance, the state is the only third party, quote unquote, available. States cannot act as impartial judges when they're involved in their own dispute. It's actually fallacious to reason this way and to conclude that the need for an impartial third party requires only one third party to appeal to. So if a monopoly state really were impartial in its own case, it would appeal to a genuine third party not another department, not another branch of the same government, but someone who isn't particularly acting in the interest of the monopoly state itself. But in doing this, it would be giving away its own monopoly. It would, in essence, be an acknowledgement that its own monopoly claim on civil governance is illegitimate because they would need somebody else to be the impartial judge in their own case. On the other hand, stateless or non-monopolistic civil governance, we call anarchism, allows for more than one third party to adjudicate disputes. So adjudicators are subject to adjudication and are not judges in their own cases. So here's how it works. Imagine there are three people, and we're just going to call them A, B, and C. So persons A and B have a dispute they can't resolve on their own. They should appeal it to person C, and that's pretty simple. Now imagine that persons A and C have a dispute should C also be the judge of that case? Of course not. So they should go to person B. And obviously, if person B and C have a dispute, they should go to person A. If we say, here's party X, whomever that is, and they are in charge and have final say over all disputes, then what happens when party X is involved in a dispute? Well, they've just violated this key principle of justice. With the state, there's no way around this. And the fact that in a dispute, there's a need for impartial third-party judges is a basic reason for statelessness as being required for legitimate civil governance. Right. And there's a great video. I'm forgetting the title at the moment. Perhaps it's 
government without the state or something like that. But anyway, we'll also put links to that video. There may be more than one in the show notes. It very helpfully illustrates exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, the second reason of locks that you present that a state is supposedly required for legitimate civil governance is that there needs to be a settled or generally known or accessible law by which to arbitrate or adjudicate disputes when they arise. And if the rules, so to speak, are arbitrary or always changing or practically incomprehensible, they aren't actually providing for a condition of law and order in a society. And Locke's conclusion is that this too is what a state is for, and only a state can provide generally agreed upon and knowable law. Why is this also really a reason against having a state and a reason for stateless civil governance? Yeah, so once again, we're myth-busting a little bit here, right? Because the colloquial use of the term anarchism is that we would embrace lawlessness, right? Chaos and lawlessness, which is the opposite of law and order. So the problem isn't actually the principle. We agree that a settled and known law is required for civil governance. The problem is the fact that states never actually do this and really don't even have any reason or incentive to do it because they're the only game in town. So states constantly produce more laws and they rarely repeal anything. We see this in the United States at all levels, federal, state, and local. And these laws aren't even necessarily produced by legislators themselves. More and more bureaucratic or administrative offices are creating de facto laws through you know, whatever rulemaking ability that they've been given. And these offices technically fall under the executive branch of government, which was never supposed to create laws to begin with. That was supposed to be a classic checks and balances written into the United States Constitution. But as a result, for example, the federal law is now so massive that no one could read all the laws in their lifetime, let alone recall them all and understand their meaning. There's a book by Harvey Silverglate called Three Felonies a Day that documents how nearly every American unknowingly commits several federal crimes. So the limited state is by its nature also adversarial. And so it begets conflict. So this quote unquote gridlock in DC is a feature, not a bug. But that adversarial nature just sort of feeds into this lawmaking process. And we see that play out every single year when there's new legislation being passed. It's not that that legislation won't be passed. It's that it will be passed in probably in the worst possible way. Stateless civil governance, however, exists amid conditions that by necessity incentivize maintaining laws within a knowable limit and to keep them relatively uniform. One example that we use is known as the law merchant. This was a system of international trade created and enforced by merchants themselves that didn't depend on civil government monopoly. Various state-made laws were simply unsuited to the demands of cross-jurisdiction trade. Merchants just voluntarily cooperated and agreed to policies among themselves. And this better facilitated voluntary exchange and mutually agreed upon dispute resolution. So ultimately, the monopoly state is actually in no position to create laws because it has also a knowledge problem that you don't find with, for example, the law merchant despite the implicit assumption that the monopoly state is a credible source of knowledge that attracts the best and brightest expertise, 
what we find, in matter of fact, is that the state is too far removed from any real circumstances to be able to know the right answer and thus produce good laws. So perhaps that makes it a little bit easier to see why statelessness is required for law and order to obtain a settled and known law. And we'll have links in the show notes about the law merchant. And I don't know, not to be too self-conscious about the links in the show notes, but I feel like we say that a lot. (laughs) Hopefully listeners aren't annoyed by that. It's a little bit of a cliche, but we'll just let you know every time there is one or check the show notes, you'll often see them. Well, you go on to explain that the third reason or argument a state is supposed to be required for a legitimate civil governance, according to Locke, is the need for effective law enforcement and enforcement of adjudication. Locke speaks of the need for power to support just rulings and execute them. If you have a dispute and it's adjudicated by an impartial third party, hopefully, and you're found to be in the right, at that point, what matters is that the judgment is effectively enforced. Mm -hmm. You also want to have effective protection from being the victim of crime in the first place. So once again, Locke concludes that only a state that has a monopoly and coercion can meet this requirement for legitimate civil governance. And why is this also really a reason against having a state and a reason for stateless civil governance? Yeah. So again, many people believe that anarchism opposes the enforcement of laws, right? But this question of effective and just law enforcement is definitely also something we do recognize as not only required for legitimate civil governance, but only truly achievable through statelessness. So the problem comes again with the state's monopoly, right? We keep pointing back to this idea of monopoly. Abuse of power is inherent in monopolization of any industry. And this is pretty intuitive when we talk about it in economic terms for other industries. Monopolization removes the incentive to provide a quality good or service since you and I can't choose to get that good or service elsewhere. An organization that monopolizes, for example, coercive law enforcement then has no incentive to restrain itself toward the end of genuine justice. There's simply no penalties if it victimizes you or doesn't follow through with ensuring that justice is served in your name, you know, if you've been victimized by somebody else. So that kind of situation makes the difficulty in acquiring enforcement of justice immeasurably worse. The power to enforce just laws and rulings requires practical constraint of that power from being used unjustly. Well, where does that constraint come from except having to compete for customers? This is true of any industry. So the necessity of competition and profit motive found in private security companies, for example, provides a hedge against abuses of power, like police brutality, for example. Authoritarian, aggressive, hot-headed officers become a liability to the health of the company. And so if it's privatized, even if there's a brotherhood mentality, that privatization allows that brotherhood mentality to be born out of a non-authoritarianism characteristic in upholding you know, good character as law enforcers, not doubling down and protecting so-called bad apples, which is what we see from monopolization. We see this problem is endemic in society right now. So monopoly enforcement makes it nearly impossible to defend one's rights against the state's monopoly on coercion. So as we mentioned in a previous episode, the state's monopoly is already in principle totalitarian and also increasingly tends towards totalitarianism in practice. This explanation is simple. 
when a monopoly on coercion is viewed as having the only legitimized final say, which is what the state's monopoly is, then any other coercive power outside of it that might otherwise constrain it is viewed as illegitimate. Now, just as with impartial judges and knowable law, effective law enforcement too is entirely possible without the state. In the United States, the government has become so bad at just enforcement that private security companies have already grown significantly. They already exist in many local areas. There are also a number of examples of stateless organizing for defense and enforcement, such as in what Terry Anderson and Peter Hill call the not-so-wild Wild West. And we can link to that book in the show notes. I feel like that would make the most boring movie ever. <laughs> yeah. It's like the worst Western ever, where right. Americans on the Western frontier yes. cooperate and resolve their disputes yeah. without violence. Yep. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting history. It examines how Americans voluntarily cooperated in civil governance as they moved into the Western frontier before the monopoly state ever arrived. And it illustrates how the need for effective law enforcement and adjudication is a basic reason that statelessness is required for legitimate civil governance. It's a very interesting read, and I encourage our listeners to go check it out. So those are the three, you could say, limited state objections and our responses to them. In the footnotes to the article, you have links to material from Roderick Long, philosophy professor at Auburn University. He elaborates on this Lockean critique of Locke and is really helpful in answering further limited state or minarchist objections to stateless or non-monopolistic civil governance. Of course, in future episodes, we'll be looking at the three other articles by Kerry in this series, especially if you are a libertarian and have further questions or objections to libertarian anarchism or stateless civil governance, you'll want to keep an eye out for those episodes in which we'll discuss human sinfulness and whether the state is necessary, whether it's inevitable, and the question of whether a non-monopolistic civil order is even plausible or practical. Thanks for listening to the Reformed Libertarians podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute with Carrie Baldwin and Gregory Baus. See the website for each episode's show notes and sign up for our email list. Don't forget to rate and review Reformed Libertarians podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. Find our email and social media on our contact page at reformedlibertarians.com.